Have you ever been to a multi-day conference? Probably many of you have. And my question to you is, do you enjoy them? Do you tolerate them? Do you despise them? Maybe it was for work, part of continuing education. Maybe you went to a church conference related to spiritual growth and biblical knowledge. In any case, uh, this past week was a full one for me and included a conference. Later in the week, just a couple days ago, I was at the board meetings for Grace College and Seminary as an alum and as a board member. And we we had the opportunity of celebrating the recent naming of a new president. Earlier in the week, I was in uh, Louisville with most of our pastoral staff at a a large conference, mostly pastors, about 10 to 12,000 there, depending upon the day and who was counting. And it was deeply uh, challenging and encouraging, especially after two years uh, since COVID has descended upon our lives. You know, conferences, if you've been to them, have uh, certain common denominators. Conferences usually bring together a large group of people. Conferences are often a multi-day affair, uh, typically not located in a place that you are aware of. It requires you to sleep in a bed that's not your own, not your own home, not uh, known at all. There are logistics involved with food and transportation and being in the right place at the right time. And good conferences will leave a lasting impression on you that you can't easily shake. All of those were true about the conference that I and we were at this past week. And all of them were true of a conference that took place 2,000 years ago. It was a conference like no other. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in that chapter in the following chapter this morning. And as you turn there, let let me remind you how things have changed. You know, if before COVID, by the way, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll give you a Bible here on loan to you if you uh, just forgot yours and for keeps if you don't. It's especially important on a day like today that you have a Bible in front of you, if at all possible, because we're going to be looking at a larger section of Scripture. Back a couple years ago, before COVID, we lived in an era in which uh, private faith commitments were common, in which a certain kind of skepticism was had about biblical claims, in which evangelicals received significant pushback. Here in an increasingly post-COVID era, we're living that on steroids. You and I, if we admit it, are living in survivalist territory. We've learned to keep our heads down at the right times, to keep our masks up, some of us at least, our, our initiatives tamed, and our opinions filtered. Again, some of us. It's a tense, it's a tumultuous world out there. And going public with our faith, with that which we believe and have our deepest convictions about, has suffered. One of the side effects of the COVID era that we have lived through is that it has acted as a wet blanket on our relational contacts, on our courage, often on our compassion for other people, even perhaps our confidence in the gospel. We see the world spinning out of control. We feel like our lives are spinning out of control. And we might ask ourselves in days like these, what does the gospel have to offer in times like these? Have you ever wondered that? And yet we know in the situation we're living in, and from experience, and from statistics, 
that the vast majority of people are not better off now. More people, it seems, are in a bad place than at any time in our lifetimes. You don't have to dig deep into the news to realize that mental health issues are widespread, especially among young adults and, and teenagers. Pessimism is the air we breathe. People, it seems, are one microaggression away from losing it. Truth seems elusive. Joy is suppressed. Hope is suffocated. Pain is multiplied. Fear is rampant. People are in deep need of some good news, something to count on. Again, I ask, does the gospel have anything to offer us in times like these? You won't be surprised if I would say to you, I believe it does. In fact, I'm convinced it does. In fact, if there has ever been a time in my lifetime where good news from God answers the cravings of this world, it's now. We live in a time of relational chaos. We live in a time of actual war. We need something secure. We need something to trust. We need someone who can satisfy our longings. And I ask you, might we have that in the gospel? I believe we do. And yet good news, which is what gospel means, is only good news if it's spoken. If you have the cure for cancer, but you tell no one, what does that help? If you have a truck full of food in the midst of a starving population, but you let no one know, what does that help? If you have a message from God, but no one hears it, how does that help? Indeed, good news must be spoken. In the coming weeks, for much of the remainder of our spring, we're in a series entitled, Can I Get a Witness? And the person asking that question is Jesus himself. Jesus, the risen Lord, the reigning king, Jesus who makes that his theme at the beginning of Acts to his followers. We're going to look at four aspects in these first two chapters of Acts that connect the gospel message of the risen Lord with the present context and our world's need. The first, the Easter effect. You can follow along in your outline in the worship program or online, gracepolaris.org program. A little background. Dr. Luke is the author not only of Luke, where we've been for the last few months, but also the book of Acts, which functions as a kind of sequel to the gospel that he wrote. There are a lot of themes that are similar. There's a lot of language that is similar, but there are aspects between Luke and Acts that are different. First of all, the time frame is different. The gospel of Luke deals with the life and ministry of Jesus, including his death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Acts deals with the followers of Jesus and the gift of Jesus's spirit who guides them into witness to all the earth. Another important difference is that there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different perspectives on the same story, the same life. And there's just one book of Acts. Four gospels, if you look in your Bibles, over a dozen letters, epistles, written to various churches and places and regions, but just one book that deals in a somewhat comprehensive way with the story of the early church. And that means Acts is vital and it's fascinating to us. Luke begins Acts 
in similar fashion to how he begins his gospel. Dr. Luke writes to a man named Theophilus, and he writes about Jesus and the effects of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection on history. And he writes things that are historically valid and accurate. In other words, Luke expects, as he writes this, to be second-guessed, to be background-checked, as he names events and people and places. He speaks of evidence. He speaks here of proofs. He knows that when people look into this, they'll find that actually happened. In fact, we see that here. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 of Acts. After his suffering, referring to Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. We're going to put a number of verses in those first two chapters on the screen, but many more not. So you'll want to follow along in the places that aren't on the screen to see what Luke describes here. Luke picks up the short period between the resurrection of Jesus and the event called Pentecost that we're going to look at here in just a moment. And it was a period of 40 days from the resurrection of Jesus until he ascended back to heaven. Verse 4, on one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If this sounds similar, it is to what Luke wrote at the end of his gospel. And the message is simple. The message is essential. Stay here. Don't move. Don't act. Because the presence of one called the Holy Spirit is coming. Kind of reminds me of what might occur in a, in a business where a, a marketing team is all gathered together and the supervisor comes in and says, we have this marvelous product. It's been researched, it's been developed, it's been produced, and soon it's to go on the market and there will be people everywhere who will want to buy it. But team, wait, don't go anywhere until I tell you. It's a bit like these disciples, these apostles may have felt when Jesus told them this, which reminds us sometimes the very best thing we can do as we see what God is doing is to wait. When God says wait, we should. Verse 6, then they gather around him and ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's a window into the hearts, the mentalities of the disciples. They are looking for Jesus to be the conquering king. They have for several years. Jesus is risen from the dead. And they want to see Jesus push back the oppressors, whether in Rome or in their own region. They want to be the famous sidekicks of the risen Jesus. Jesus, tell us it's now. Jesus, just give us the word. And Jesus says, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's my paraphrase of what Jesus told them. When this happens is none of your business. In fact, it's a distraction to your present priority. The Father is going to take care of that on his timetable. First priority is something else. I want you to be my witnesses. You'll receive power to do so. You're going to receive this divine presence called the Holy Spirit to do so. You're going to be sent out both far and wide. You're going to be given a clear message. I want you to be witnesses of the crucified and risen Lord 
which is the good news of God. And that was it. Message given, messenger gone. After he said this, verse nine, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were commissioned and then they were stunned. Now what? Now what do we do? The rest of the chapter, if you look there in Acts 1, concerns itself with the naming of a replacement for Judas Iscariot. And after prayer, after discussion, after decision, they land upon one named Matthias who met the qualifications and became then the 12th of those disciples called apostles. And that all set the stage for this coming event that would shock them and everyone else. It was connected to what's called the Feast of Weeks. It was one of three gatherings, celebrations, among the Jewish people each year where they would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, some from the region, some from quite far away. And there were many nationalities present, and there were many languages as a result present. And that's the context for what we find here, the event of Pentecost, the event of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. And that day describes what takes place in Acts 2, 50 days after Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 10 days after Jesus ascended back to heaven and left them to wait for God's next move. The disciples obey God by waiting. And when God tells us to wait, we do well. They didn't quite know what they were waiting for. They had heard Jesus talk about this Holy Spirit. They, they heard Jesus' prediction about the power they would receive. But let's face it, they had little idea what that would look like, how they would experience it. They just knew something big was about to happen, so they waited. And what happens is described in Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Lord enabled them. There it is, just four verses. Here's what happens. Number one, a powerful tornado-like sound comes from heaven and inhabits the house where the disciples, more than just the 12, are staying. Number two, tongues of fire, whatever that means, come and rest upon them. Number three, each of them is able to speak in other languages. That's the precise word. In many languages then and now, tongue and language is the same word. So when we say they were able to speak in other tongues, they're able to speak in other known languages that they had not previously learned. This is a miracle, not of hearing, but of speaking. People who hadn't learned a language were suddenly able to speak it in clear and understandable ways. I don't know about you, but I would love to have that. Language learning is hard work. This event at Pentecost demonstrated a new unity among these followers of Jesus, a new barrier transcended of the ethnic and language obstacles. It already hints, do you want to know what is a lasting answer to the conflict and the tension and the barriers between people even today? Well, we find it here. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the game changer. Many, many people look at this and see the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel way back in Genesis chapter 11. At the Tower of Babel, the, the people and their languages were confused so they wouldn't understand one another. Well, here at Pentecost, the languages, so to speak, are brought back together so that as people spoke the different languages, they were able to understand what others were saying. Though here at Pentecost, there were many languages, there was one message. And we see that in the next verses. This event is often thought of as the beginning of the church. Capital C, God's worldwide, through the ages, community of Jesus followers. And that's true. But Pentecost is also the launch of an unstoppable, bold, resilient witness to the gospel. Suddenly, these disciples of Jesus have a courage, have a resilience that is unexplainable apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Fearing no opposition, courageous beyond explanation. Michael Green wrote over 50 years ago a wonderful book called Evangelism in the Early Church. You say, can there be a book worthwhile reading 50 plus years ago? Absolutely. We should not be uh, part of chronological snobbery as C.S. Lewis once wrote, thinking that the only things that matter are things that were said or done or written recently. In that book, Michael Green says, what was remarkable about the early Christians was their conviction, their passion, their determination to act as Christ's embassy to a rebel world, whatever their consequences. Pentecost wasn't just the start of the church. Pentecost was the launch of the gospel of the risen Christ. That got an interesting response. These people who could speak in otherwise unknown languages to them. And Peter begins to make explanation. Peter is all of a sudden given a platform with which to speak, to explain what had just happened. Take note of that there. More times than you and I may realize, God gives us a platform to speak of Jesus. But you'll only speak or speak well of Jesus if you're ready and expectant of those opportunities. Where do they come? They come in your neighborhood. They come at your workplace, maybe with your boss, often with your colleagues, sometimes with your subordinates. They come within your family, maybe with an unbelieving friend. I hope you have some. They come sometimes in conversation with the waitress or the cashier or the customer service representative in person or even on the phone. They, they come with fellow students that you're in school with, sometimes the teacher or the professor. They come with opportunities to converse with the doctor or the nurse or some other healthcare professional. God gives us unexpected opportunities with other people to show compassion for them and to bear witness to Jesus. Question is, are you ready when they come? We see here, beginning in verse 14, the message of Pentecost, what Peter says as this opportunity was dropped in his lap. Peter, speaking for them, offers explanation and meaning for what they had just seen in the bizarre event of Pentecost. And we can divide his monologue, three, four, five, six, uh, minutes, if we read this, these 20 verses, three things, Joel's prophecy, 
God's sovereignty, Jesus' identity. Peter's address, Joel's prophecy, God's sovereignty, Jesus' identity. Let's start with the prophecy. Verse 14, then Peter stood up at the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter was prepared by the Holy Spirit and he opened his mouth to speak. Do you and I? If someone looks at you and says, how do you explain your life? What makes you tick? Do you have words to say? If someone says to you, everything's wrong in the world, so many problems, is there any answer? What would you say? Someone says to you, I so wish I could live the way I know I ought to. Is that possible? What would you say? Somebody says, every passing day reminds me I'm one day closer to death, and I fear it. Do I have to? What would you say? Often, let's be honest, we pray for opportunities. What if God answered that prayer and gave them? Three times in this short address from Peter, he quotes from the Old Testament, which is intentional. In that same book, Michael Green writes, Gospel witness to the Jews emphasized that the ancient scriptures had at last been fulfilled. The promises had come true. This had been achieved in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter is saying here that what you've just seen in the day of Pentecost is the fruit, is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied in the Old Testament. The last days have arrived. Many times we hear that phrase, the last days, the end times, and we all think that that's only future. And there are aspects, the Bible teaches, that are yet to come. But the Bible also teaches that you and I are already living in the last days. If you're waiting to know how to live in the last days, wait no longer. It starts today. The Bible teaches that. Peter's whole description here is that the fulfillment of what was said back in the Old Testament is being fulfilled right before your very eyes. That the arrival of Jesus is the capstone of the revelation of God, of Yahweh. God has most completely revealed himself in the person of Jesus, and now through his spirit, you're seeing the effects of that. There are no more excuses and you, Peter says, oh God, a response. Every last one of you, Peter says then, and the scriptures say to us, now. Peter makes clear here that all of us owe a response and whosoever will may come. That's the great message in our divided world. The gospel is on offer for every person and every person owes God a response to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every person must respond. Second point of Peter's speech, God's sovereignty, and we might add, and human responsibility. Peter goes deeper on the person of Jesus, explaining how this Jesus that you just experienced is so central to God's revelation and to the events of history. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter appeals to the lived experience of these people who are listening. You've seen him. This incredible man named Jesus has done these things in your midst, empowered by God. And the plan of God and the evil of humanity are all tied together. These are not two stories, but this is God's work in history through you. And then Peter, with an incredible boldness, says, you are not bystanders here. You are accomplices in what has happened. He said, and you have killed him. I don't know about you, but that's courage. When's the last time you told somebody that they were guilty of capital murder to their face? Peter says that. Peter quotes again, second time from the Old Testament, this time quoting David, who spoke in advance of the Lord Jesus' coming. His heart was glad, his joy is full from Psalm chapter 16, because David knew that God was in control, but he didn't quite know how all of this would take place. He just trusted that God was in control. Joel's prophecy, God's sovereignty, how about Jesus' identity? Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. David didn't understand how all of this would take place, but he believed God that it would take place. Pentecost was the fulfillment. Then comes this climactic event. Peter nails it like a good gymnast at the end of his or her routine. This is what has happened. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. The one you watched, the one you heard, the one you saw, the one you killed, the one who is risen again. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Peter is saying, this has happened in history. And this Pentecost is the explanation of what that meant. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says, the resurrection is a historical fact, like the death and burial, not an interpretation of an event. It was a reality that changed the direction of the witnesses' lives. The resurrection was not simply an interesting story that's supposed to inspire us and make us feel better about what God is doing. That's why the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. Jesus Christ literally walked out of that grave. It happened in history, and Peter says, and you know that. Many of you saw him. Many have made the observation that of all the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there are many, the most lasting 
is the changed lives of those who saw him, watched him, and then met him as the risen Lord. Fourth and finally in your outline, the model of Pentecost. And let me explain that. We could put a question mark behind that little phrase there. Here's why. Because the book of Acts is by and large a descriptive account of what happened, not a prescriptive account of all that we must do. It explains rather than declares our obligation. But there are many things in the book of Acts that have an imperatival, a command-like structure. There are principles and patterns in Acts that we would do well to notice and to imitate. For instance, the force and the courage of Peter's words. Peter is saying here that God has supernaturally acted in history, that God is like the grand conductor of all the notes of history. Peter is saying that humanity was blind and evil in how they treated Jesus Christ. They did not recognize who he was. They didn't have eyes to see, as we saw last week, who he is. And that they and we are guilty of cosmic treason against God because of our treatment of Jesus. Peter does not pull punches here. Peter says, you are not bystanders, you are accomplices. And yet God gets the last word. Jesus is proven to be who he said he is by the power of God in the resurrection. In verse 32, there's the climax of God's work in Jesus. Then verse 36 is the explanation of the significance of that. Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. In light of all that, here's who Jesus is, Peter says. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Let all the world be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and he's the promised Messiah. Both of those terms are freighted with meaning. Messiah was the one that the Jews continually looked forward to, the one who would deliver, the one who would rescue them from their oppression, from the yoke of those who ruled over them, who would finally come and rule and reign in good ways. Lord perhaps had a double meaning there as Peter spoke it for Palestinian Jews who lived in that region. They would refer often uh, to God or of God, Yahweh Adonai as the Lord. But on a wider scale in the whole Greco-Roman world, there was a, a thought that people knew and said that Caesar was Lord. And Peter says, no, no, Jesus is Lord. Peter is saying here that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus has got everything that's been said about him has been validated here, and it's true. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. God has done his ultimate work in Jesus to show the world who he is. And now everyone, Peter says, owes God a response. Not just the Jews then, as we will see in Acts, but everyone since then, everyone including us. What have you done with Jesus whom God sent for you? How do you respond to a Jesus whose identity is that? 
Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were pierced. They were stung. They were pricked. That's what the word means. They were convicted. They were exposed. They were found guilty. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel pierces our minds and our consciences and our wills. The gospel lays us bare. Have you ever been laid bare by news about you that you didn't want to know, you didn't want to hear, but someone said it to you and you realize that's true? That's what Peter does here with his audience. He convicts them through the power of the Spirit of the claims of the gospel. They were cornered by the truth of the gospel. What should they do? What should we do? Peter's reply is straightforward. It's the response inherent in the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. In other words, familiarity with Jesus doesn't cut it. You can't say, well, I knew him and I saw him. I'm good. Salvation requires a response to him, a relationship with him, not just a collection of truths. It's a call to respond. I remember one time, uh, not that long ago, one of our staff members said that in the church they grew up in, all the facts about Jesus were told to them, but they never heard how to respond. Well, Peter tells his listeners both here, and as he tells them, he tells you and me too. Listen closely to him, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. As we read through the book of Acts, we'll see this a number of times, that the explanation of response to the gospel varies, but inevitably it's connected to repentance and faith, to a realization that I'm on a dead-end road. And repenting of that, turning and trust to Jesus Christ for what he's already done. Turn and trust, repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin, how we respond to Jesus. And Peter here speaks of the response of baptism when repentance and faith have taken place. Most of you should know that baptism has never saved a soul. Baptism does not save, but baptism is the proper response going public with the fact that God has intervened in my life. I have repented and believed, trusted Jesus. Baptism is the natural response of the saved person to tell the world. And the willingness to be baptized is an outward expression of what has already occurred inwardly. Someone who is a follower of Jesus but has not been baptized as a believer is someone who is married who refuses to wear the ring because they don't want anyone to know. They don't want to confess that that's true. Friends, Jesus, Peter, Paul, the New Testament offers us, urges us to go public with our faith in the water of baptism and what God has already done. They responded in mass to Peter's message. 
They responded in repentance and faith. And 3,000 of them were baptized that very day. That's a phenomenal response. That's a gospel harvest. That was one I, as I've said before, would love to see the video. Have you responded in that way? The gospel has been preached to you. The Holy Spirit convicts you. This is who Jesus is. And this is what that reveals about who you are. Have you responded in repentance and faith? And have you told the world through baptism what God's done? For some here today, that's the response that is urged of you. This is Jesus. What do you do with him? You ever confess that to God? Have you ever prayed a prayer that says, God, that's him and this is me and I need him. I need rescue so that I may have what he is. I want to conclude our time with a summary and a preview of where we're going to be going this spring. And here's why. Because in order to believe the gospel and in order to share it with confidence, we have to have clarity on what it is. I'm going to give you four C's that I think are vital to understanding and being fruitful in our gospel witness. I've talked to lots and lots of believers, many in this room. And for many people, there's a deep desire to be effective in our gospel witness. But there's also a deep disappointment or frustration with the feeling that we're not. These four things, I think, are a great checklist, a great grid through which to see our own witness and the desire of Jesus to make himself known through us. First, clarity on the gospel. Clarity on the gospel. This is a confidence in understandably summarizing the good news of God. We're going to get to that in a moment. We need to have clarity on the gospel. Number two, contact with unbelievers. Genuine relational connections with people who don't yet know Jesus. Do you have them? Remember, good news is good news as it's spoken. Three, compassion for human needs. Eyes to see, a heart to respond to people that hurt. And our world is full of them. People that need to know that they matter to God, made in his image. And people that need to know that their hurt is not alone. That God sees and cares, but they need Jesus Christ in order to see health, life. Fourth, courage to speak the good news. Courage is a resolve to speak as opportunities arise given by God. Clarity on the gospel, contact with unbelievers, compassion for human needs, courage to speak good news. If any of those are missing in our witness, then we're not nearly as effective, maybe not at all as we can be or should be. But when those four things are true, look out world. Clarity on the gospel. If you get nothing else from this morning, I want you to take this. Many people think, if given the opportunity, how would I briefly, concisely, understandably summarize the gospel? For me, it's been very helpful to think of the gospel as God, man, Christ response. Four things. God, man, Christ response. First God. God created every human being in his image. He loves us and he makes each of us accountable to him. That's part of the gospel. Number two, man or humanity. 
all of us, each of us has rebelled against God, which the Bible calls sin, and therefore each of us stands under the rightful condemnation of God. Many people are lost in the gospel message because they say that's interesting news, but why do I need it? Here's why you need it, because you're a sinner, every one of us, and lost. God, man or humanity, Christ. Jesus is the intervention of God in the world. Living a perfect life, dying as our substitute, rising in power, God offers us salvation in Jesus. There is no other way. It's Jesus alone. God, man, Christ, response. That every person is called to respond to this message of salvation through repentance and faith. And those who do receive salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, inclusion in the people of God, and the guarantee of eternal life. The benefits keep on giving for those who are saved by the power of God. God, man, Christ responds. Could you summarize the gospel if you were asked? And yet everything around this is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God is laser-focused on Jesus, died and risen again. Jesus, who changed history. Jesus, the perfect man. Jesus, the only sacrifice. Jesus, the risen Lord. And that life and that weekend that we celebrated last week changes everything. And that's why we celebrate it every week and every day. Great news in a lost world. Have you embraced it? And do you tell it? Because, friends, they need it. Those convinced of the risen Jesus cannot help but declare the saving gospel. Is that us? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself in flesh and blood, in a person that we could relate to and watch and hear and touch. Thank you that he came and actually lived he ate, he slept, he laughed, he wept. Thank you that he died in our place. Thank you that he rose again, showing that our worst enemy does not have power over us who believe. God in heaven, thank you that we are witnesses to the living Christ, that he is our all in all. He is our everything. Give us the courage and passion to be people who speak it in a needy world. In Jesus' name. Amen.